Hello and welcome to Betting People with this week's guest, Steve Ryder. Now, Steve is not only an owner and breeder, but he also writes for OzChecker and he is the host and producer of the On The Hunt podcast. Thank you very much for joining us this evening, Steve. Thanks, William. Yeah, we've, uh, we've known each other a few years now, but it's nice to, um, yeah. We have indeed. We absolutely have indeed. Um, going on from that, though, one thing I don't know about you is how you got into racing. So I'd very much like to start with that. So I live in a little village just outside Newmarket. So kind of growing up around horses and that sort of stuff. You can't really go around Newmarket without having to stop in traffic to be able to, to let the racehorses across the road. Um, I suppose I really got into the, the horse racing side of it at university, um, just through the betting side of it. It was quite lucky that it was at the time where Frankel burst onto the scene. Um, we went to Newmarket for the, for the 2000 Guineas that year, it was 2011, um, and pretty much just followed him around the country on his remaining starts. So I went to Goodwood for the Sussex States against Camford Cliffs, went to York for the Judmont, and then went to Ascot for Champions Day, obviously on its final start. So that kind of helped. Um, along those way um, I've obviously then gone to the Cheltenham Festival uh, and I'm actually really looking forward to it this year going back to to the July Cup uh, got tickets for the Saturday lucky enough to get those oh fantastic um, that'll, that'll actually be the first time that we back on a race course since the Cheltenham Festival in 2020 which seemed absolutely oh, wow. yeah it has been really has been quite a time um, I I think there's many people who wouldn't have imagined the next time to get on a race course. I, I certainly didn't, um, but I went um, during the December period when we were suddenly allowed to go for a couple of days. Um, just for one thing, were you in a racing club at university or? No, no, it was purely down to the to the gambling side of it. Um, one of my one of my good friends there, um, yeah, was interested in the in the betting side of it. Kind of one of those things that at university you sit there you do your football accumulators and you mm. on those afternoons you sit and watch sport and i think it was around the time of, of of horse racing just being being on terrestrial tv which was obviously a bit of a godsend really um and that's the way that i got into sport so it's really good that the likes of itv racing uh, have still obviously maintained that and hopefully yeah they'll bring a fair few people into the sport that way absolutely um the viewing figures are good on that front um i'm interested because you and I both got into punting sort of the same way. Um, I certainly had my first punts at university. Were there any lessons that you learned when you started out that, at that time? Because I certainly feel there are some that I learned um, when I started out at that time. I think it's from listening to people, but not relying on them so there's so much content out there these days there wasn't quite as much around the sort of 10 years ago that I kind of first got into it yeah uh, now there's millions of podcasts which we'll obviously go on to later tipping columns and everything like that where at the time you kind of had the racing post sporting life that was really about it um but I think as much as it can be with all these Cheltenham previews and that sort of stuff like watch them brilliant listen to people's opinions and then form your own opinion from there um, because a lot of people kind of will follow a certain tipster and just follow everything that they do whereas you kind of need to I suppose mold yourself around the best points of everyone um, everyone has their own kind of strategies and do's and don'ts um, which I'm sure we'll go into um, but it's kind of just yeah. developing your own way and it will take years for you to do that I lost a fair amount of money at the start 
from wrong information or, or doing the wrong sort of things and, and you will go through that process so if you're first starting out keep your stakes small learn learn the things that work for you and then gradually up your stakes from there because you will then become a successful punter and start, start losing your accounts <laughs> <laughs> um just two follow-on questions from there uh, firstly when did you start to turn a profit um something i'm interested in i'd say probably about two or three years into it i think everyone kind of remembers the successes early on oh i remember mm. back in this horse that won this and, and and that but realistically if i'm being honest with myself i was probably a losing punter for the first couple of years um and thankfully i've learned lessons quickly and and the last few years has been have been very profitable for me and on the other um, side of that um what were the do's and don'ts that you learned early on it's not so much early on i i kind of I, i'm still adapting each day we'll, we'll go on to i've obviously run tipping columns and, and bits and pieces from there but i think you've got to change change the way that you as as the programs change i suppose so one of the main things that i've changed recently is is since they've changed the program with reducing the number of maidens and more novice races i think yeah. that's quite a a good betting strategy from there you, you genuinely have to be a group performer um in these novice races to defy a penalty so i much prefer looking at those races bookmakers automatically put in a horse that's won on their debut generally in evens maybe even shorter than that odds on for these novice races whereas if you find a horse that's finished second third fourth on their debut shaping like it will benefit from that experience that's often a good strategy to go um, even more if you find a stable that don't particularly get them ready on debut um, I, mm. I find that a fantastic way through if you actually go through John Gosden I know we've had a look at stats and bits and pieces from him he really struggles with horses in novice races under a penalty whereas I think if you look at the odds that those horses have gone off the majority of them are kind of shorter than six to four um, so that's one of the recent changes in the program that I'll really get behind when having a look at tipping or punting yeah it's a really interesting angle we've had lots of people on betting people who have certain angles into um not only you know maidens and stuff but other races too um interesting in terms of a uh, approach to maidens and whatever are there particular races and particular types of contests that you prefer to go for and are there also other races that you prefer to avoid when you're i mean i guess backing and also tipping um as you do for checker so I'm quite a big anti-post punter. So I like mm. finding um, runners, trainer targets, bits and pieces like that. I don't often tip those because the majority of the time, obviously, there's there's not enough time to be able to get your your bet on. Have, have you have you found it become impossible to do it in the same way that you might have? I don't know how long you've been going for Ozchecker, but you know, it feels to me like there's been a sea change in you know what you can do the season before last compared to say five or six years ago in terms of anti-post has it become really really difficult almost impossible to make anti-post pay um over the last few years no it's what i'll still happily punt anti-post and happily make a profit on it 
I just don't feel like I can do that in the facility of tipping to people. Mm. Um, I used to I used to write a, a Wednesday column for bookmakers.co.uk and every week I'd then be tipping three or four horses for the weekend there. Um, that was okay a couple of years ago. Um, but at the minute, they're so volatile, the markets, that even a, a few bets will, will reduce a horse's odds and then actually I might look at the race and something else has become the value in that race because of the changes in those odds. So yes, I'll punt anti-post and yes, I'll make a profit anti-post, but for a tipping facility, um, to be able to help other punters, it, it just it just doesn't work anymore. But makers just cut prices so quickly. Um, yeah, it, if you've got a nugget of information that a certain horse isn't running, or a certain horse is running, normally you've got kind of a 10-15 minute interval where you can get your bet on before the markets will react. And sort of coming to the end of this period, but for people who might just be starting out in terms of their punting, um, what advice would you give them? Uh, personally, a few other strategies that I look at, um, I place a lot of importance on course and distance form, um, looking at specific tracks. So if you find a track that serves a certain horse or that's quite quirky horse, um, sorry, a quirky race horse. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like a Chester, Chester or something. Chester, Epsom, Pontefract, tight turns, Cartmel over jump even sort of new market on the sprint distances with going into the dip and horses handling that if a yeah. horse has got course and distance form over there it means a lot so i'll i'll have a look back at their form and if they've had course and distance form over there not even just course and distance winning form just course and distance form it really does mean a lot um i also like horses on handicap debut with things that are different so a horse is on yeah. handicap debut if you look at a horse that has had three runs and it's in a race on its handicap debut against on it, well, against exposed rivals around 20 odd times, the handicapper knows how good they are. If you've got a horse going into that handicap, they've come into there and they've been fitted with first time headgear, uh, they've been gelded, they're up in trip. So, Sir Mark Prescott is obviously well known for doing this, running horses yeah. over six, seven furlongs up to a mile and a half in handicap debut, bang, go straight in. Um, horses that have had a break so they've ran three times as two-year-olds come back on their three-year-old handicap debut um after a 200 off day break they've had so much improvement over that time uh, and often you can find a stable that aren't quite as well found in the market as the Samar prescott horse um and make that pay so Samar prescott generally open about six to four um that can be value on some horses that then rack up a sequence of six wins going up from mile and two, mile and four, mile and six, two miles. Um, but there are other trainers that are very, very good at that. Um, with regards to headgear, I like switches in headgear um, with specific trainers. So one recent example of last season was Captain Chaos. Captain Chaos ran without headgear, was held up in a few races, dropped down the handicap, bang, classic chase, blinkers back on, prominent ride. Um, and he went close and ended up winning on his next start after that. So there are certain angles with headgear that I will have a look at as well. Thank you very much. And a really interesting point. And part one of this Betting People interview with you, Steve Ryder. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Betting People with Steve Ryder. Now, in the first part, we talked about some of Steve's punting strategies and how he got into betting. I want to ask about his 
tipping strategies um, or your tipping strategies I should say Steve because you have managed to make a profit for quite a few years and, and that's something that is not an easy thing to do and believe you me I would know so um, how do you go about finding your selections just just from a base level you know you've got an, an average day's racing let's say you write for us checker um, what's the process behind that go through every race I'll look for specific pieces of form course and distance form if there are tracks like I've highlighted before the likes of Chester Epsom Cartmel um, and go through and I'll look at every single race create a short list um, generally the evening I for odds checker I post my tips to odds checker who then post those exclusively on the app between 8.30 and 9am. So I will look through a race the night before, um, conduct a short list of horses who I like and at the current prices that are obviously available overnight. I'll then readdress that, get up in the morning and see if the prices are still value in my eyes and obviously shorten the short list from there um, and send in my selections and hope they're still a backing price when obviously um, they get posted onto the app. Um, it was a little bit different back in the day. So I used to tip for betting tips for you. Um, I started with them in July, 2017. I was with them for nearly four years. That was a little bit easier. I used to post it to their website so I could basically make my selections and post those straight away with the, with the prices that were available. So I'd sometimes do that the night before I'd sometimes do that on the day. Um, that was really, really good for me learning around tipping so in the nearly four years I was with them I was nearly 250 points up at the end which was which I'm really quite proud of and doing that kind of opened loads of avenues for me so I I never believed let's say four years ago when I'd when I was just putting selections in on Twitter got picked up by better tips for you I never believed that I'd be I'd be writing for odds checker one day um, but that's opened loads of avenues from doing that. So if you are watching this thinking, oh, I've just been putting my selections on Twitter, like it does happen. Um, companies like Oddschecker will pick you up to obviously, if you're, if you're good enough and you believe in yourself, you will do that. Um, from that, it's opened other avenues. Um, I did some work with a YouTube channel. Um, it's quite, quite funny. We, we debated the chances of Monkfish and Envoy Allen for the Novice Chase at the Punchestown Festival. Um, got over three and a half thousand views. That was fantastic. Yeah until Cole Reavy beat them both um, <laughs> and uh, yeah pretty much made that episode null and void uh, but that was really good to obviously be involved in that um, other bits obviously you know around is is the on the hump podcast so <laughs> yeah, our, our mutual friend Ryan Summerfield uh, was bugging me for months to try and set up a podcast um, I in the end agreed to do this um, under the assumption that I would take control of it organize it host it um and yeah that's been really successful to be fair um it's really grown over the years uh we got sponsorship by Bet Bright early on uh, we had Rich Ritchie on we had Asheen Murphy on for, for specials on there as well and we consistently get over a thousand listens a week uh, we had two over two thousand listens for our Royal Ascot preview so um yeah it's all around kind of guests on and tipping strategies from there but we consistently do that every week and You'll be on tomorrow, Will. So yeah, I hope. Yeah, I sh I shall I be on tomorrow. Um, I hope you've been studying the cards at Sandown for the Eclipse. <laughs> I have indeed. Um, in a betting people hope you featured me, you'll find out how I got the winners on <laughs> that Sandown <laughs> card. Um, but 
with all that in mind, um, one thing I'm interested in is there's an awful lot of debate and discussion over how successful tipsters can be um, given the changes that bookmakers make to their selections. Um, now, for Oztech, obviously, it's an in-the-morning thing. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had to forego selections, sometimes even winning selections, because the prices have moved so much? Yeah, so actually, it, quite, it was quite a funny story. The, the David Jeffries gamble um, a couple of months mm -hmm. ago, I'd selected one of his horses, um, was quite interested in some of his back form, uh, was nine to one when I did my selections the night before, had been slightly backed, was about seven to one in the morning, sent mm. it in. I sent my tips in around sort of seven, seven thirty before I go to work. Um, yeah. I actually then emailed through at eight thirty after this supposed gamble had started yeah. um, because at that point he was seven to four. And I thought, I, oh, I, can't, I can't be doing this. <laughs> Um, so obviously, yeah, I could then write in and, and that, that obviously then didn't get posted. Um, but at the same time, I've also been kind of half stitched up by, by non-runners. Um, I've tipped a horse each way, had a significant non-runner in the race and ended up having half a point each way on the, on the app on a five to two shot. Now I'm well known as being, uh, an each way scumbag in races, but even I wouldn't be having half each a way point scumbags each way. Scumbags unite by the way. Each way scumbags unite. <laughs> I'm absolutely firmly on that side of the argument, but do you go on? Yeah, so that, that's it really. Like, you know, this, yeah, I haven't got any more to add. <laughs> no, fair enough. It, it is something that happens to, to all of us. It's something that's happened to me, having written for the Star Content site, and I think um, it is something of interest. Um, obviously, I'm presuming you've got a P&L. Yeah, I've got PNL for Rod's check at the minute. Um, I actually made a terrible start. So I started in January. Uh, I was about minus 17 down for January, about minus six for February. Um, recently, the last, I actually stopped stopped tipping for betting tips for you because it just uh, I ended up spending too long on it. So I mm. ended up obviously coming back off furlough, like a lot of people in the in the country. Uh, went back to my regular job. Ended up then obviously tipping for betting tips for you and Rod's yeah. checker. Uh, have a young family myself and then actually mm. since i've since i've stopped bet, uh, tipping for vintage for you actually my profit and loss has been fantastic for us checker uh, i'm now back in profit i'm plus 20 ish for this month so i'm up to about yeah plus well plus double figures uh for us checker uh which has yeah got me out of a bit of a hole from from where i was early on uh that's excellent to hear um i'm guessing you would encourage everybody who does punt even on the recreational scale to try and keep a profit and loss um because it's been, it's been something i've been doing over the last i'd say months or so um and it's something that you've done for a long time um could you explain actually what you think having profit and loss brings to your game in terms of an edge yeah i know you've been tracking yours for the last 18 months because i sent you my spreadsheet so um yeah anyone that actually <laughs> wants me to send it through with all the formulas and everything they just give me a shout yeah, um, uh, it, it, it helps obviously just track what you're doing and what you're doing wrong what you're doing right so actually quite frequently I'll go back through my profit and loss work out my selections that have worked work out my selections that haven't um, looking to see obviously everything's done on a point scale the majority of my selections will be one point win or half a point each way um, however it's quite interesting to then look back 
at your bigger stakes. So for example, Royal Ascot had two points each way on Poetic Flair, that obviously worked out really well. And it's then going back through to seeing if those confident selections do reward you long-term or whether you should just keep at the same stake throughout. Um, at the same time, it is then knowing if you're on a good run of form. So as I have been this month, had a long thought about upping my stakes every day um, as I am in form. However, that can quickly change. So today, for example, I've tipped three horses and I'm five points down. So, um, yeah, it's just kind of keeping confidence in what you know you're good at. So I went for a bad three months at the start of the odds checker era, I suppose, in my career. And it was just having the confidence to not do anything different. Mm. I, I could have easily done something different, started chasing losses, started putting up short price favourites, started increasing my stakes to try and chase, but I didn't. I just kept doing exactly what I've been doing for the last nearly 10 years. Um, yeah. And it's turned and it's, it is just having that confidence to just keep doing what you're doing because eventually you know that it will come right. And do you actually think there would have been any situation in which you would have changed um, your staking plan or approach? Yeah, if it had carried on, I'd have had to have a good large. Everything changes, doesn't it? Horse racing is like every sport. Um, things change. The like we sped around novice races, rejecting, uh, replacing the majority of maidens. Like the ca the calendar changes. Um, field sizes change. Makes like the races change. Um, the stables that are dominating the sport change. So it it, it will go back. And you just have to look through and adapt what you're doing, but at the same time, work, know what works for you, basically. I think that's very wise and sage advice indeed. Um, just to bring this to an end, um, would there be any sort of conditions that you feel you are a sort of very comfortable tipping in and be uncomfortable tipping in. I ask because there are some punters, um, and I'm sure plenty of people who've been on betting before who have made certain conditions pay for them. They wait for certain ground conditions. They will only bet at certain races, um, or you know they will only, for instance, do the opposite. They'll only lay in certain races or whatever. Do you have a certain set? of conditions where you are happier to put odds up or, or tips up, I should say, for odds checker than vice versa? I like higher quality races. I much prefer to tip in group races. Um, I find that the horses are more dependable. If you're, if you're consistently tipping in 0-65s, 0-70s, you are relying on that horse to run up to his handicap. Yes, it might back over its course and distance it lives. Yes, it might have the headgear. Yes, it might have the ground. But actually, you are backing a horse that at the end of the day isn't very good. Um, and they might not run up to that level. If you're betting in group races, you're betting in the group ones, they are very, very good horses. And it sounds very basic to say, but you are betting on the elite horses in our sport. And nine times out of ten, they're going to run to the form. So... Yeah. I generally, for example, Royal Ascot, I didn't have a single bet in any of the two-year-old races. I just find it too difficult. So Coventry, 
Queen Mary. Really all really we had the conversation, didn't we? You put up three horses in the Queen Mary. I did put up three horses in the Queen Mary on the star side. And to this day, it's, it's interesting because in the because beforehand, they were all three horses I absolutely loved on debut. And in the immediate aftermath, especially as it had, I must admit, well, anybody who read the site would know I've had, I've had quite a bad week at Russell at this point. Written the aftermath, you have that sort of huge pang of regret. Um, so no, that that's a very interesting way to go on, and, and it's naturally in the standard point of view. So do carry on with that. Yeah, and I won't necessarily never back in a two-year-old race. Like I'm not one of these people that keeps speed figures, looks at speed figures, mm. particularly looks at RPRs or anything from kind of debut efforts or anything like that. I very much am a punter and a, and a, and a better that that uses my eye so if i watch yeah. a race and i think wow that horse is brilliant yes i'll kind of have a look and just see how the form's working out and those sort of things but a lot of it's done from my eye i won't go get my get my stopwatch out and, and see how quickly it ran in the last two thousands. like a lot of it you can when you've been doing it this long it, you can do from your eye really um I'm not saying that I won't back on two year old races, I definitely will. Um, but I just find those ones early season at Royal Ascot are really difficult for me. And that probably is going back to what we said around keeping a PL. If I've gone back through my profit and loss and had a look back at those, yeah. and you kind of just go, well, why am I still doing it? Like, yes, I- I'm making a loss on it. Let's just stop doing that. Um, and I've kind of learned that over the last few years. I've done the same in, in sellers. I don't bet on sellers. I don't bet in claimers. I just haven't made it profitable. So there's some people that are brilliant at it. Absolutely brilliant. I'm not one of them. I'll just, I'll, as soon as I go through a card and I see a classified stakes or, or a seller or, or anything like that, I'll just, I, I won't even bother. Um, I'll concentrate mainly on novice races, handicaps and group races. Just one follow-on question, actually, um, from this, but you were talking about you know, race that uh, necessarily wouldn't tip in. Um, and I was just also wondering, um, when it comes to it, have you ever actually changed your mind on races or subjects that were no-go areas for you before um, that you've actually changed your mind on and you thought, I can put up horses in those sorts of races, you know, because I, I, I never used to be a handicap fan. I never used to be a handicap fan. Um, but they provided me my only two winners of the World Ascot Week. Has that happened for you? I used to think that these big 20-odd runner handicaps were impossible. I will still only do it. I find it hard on the opening day of the meeting, so Royal Ascot, Ascot in general, often has a draw bias. I much prefer to wait for the first day, get out of the way, and then I'll have a proper bet later in the week the Wokingham the the Royal Hunt Cup anything like that once yeah. you know that either the the stand side or, or the far side are favoured um I'll happily do that um so I suppose early on I just used to look through and, uh, and see the the vast majority of runners and go I'm not even bothering having a look through that but if you do look through those you find where the pace is going to be on a certain side after the draw as they've been um, you can make that profitable, and I suppose in the in the in the recent years, I have been more inclined to take more of a time in these sort of twenty odd runner handicaps to actually 
find the answer to the puzzle, which I think is actually, they're the most satisfying ones. Yes, you can pick out a group one winner. Yes, you can pick up an, an impressive uh, group winner, listed winner and work out that. But actually it feels so good when you look through it, you know what's going to make the pace. You know, you find a horse that's drawn next to that horse to track the pace. You're on the right side. You've got the ground. Solving that puzzle is one of the, the best things about horse race. As somebody who trumpet signal here managed to put up the Sandringham and the Woking winner, I will not disagree with you. Thank you very much um, for your time, Steve Ryder, on Betting People this week. Welcome, well, thanks. Hello, welcome back, and thank you very much for joining us for the first part of Betting People with Steve Ryder. Now, Steve, you are a punter and a tipster, but you're also an owner-breeder, so please tell us more about that. So let me stop you right there. So I, all the lads will take the mick out of me because I always use we. Now, I'm partly involved in Farmer's Hill Stud, um i got involved in them through my grandparents in law mm. um i basically married into it um it's been fascinating though to be fair so for the last oh god so he's going to kill me about eight years um i've obviously seen that side of the sport so got into it through punting um got into it that way and obviously then met zoe met through obviously then uh, the breeding side of it through the grandparents-in-law. So it is a really interesting part of it. And it's you see all the, the ups and downs through that part of it, through the sales process, and then the pride of seeing a horse that you have bred win a race. I, I'll bet, um, albeit I have never come close to satisfaction of those two feelings. Um, so what's... You've told us a bit more about sort of your role and your positions there. What are you doing now in terms of breeding? Because um, we are, I'm guessing, midway through the breeding season. Please correct me if I'm wrong. How embarrassing it be for me? So the majority of uh, mares will be in fault now. So we selected which stallions our mares would go to um, very early on in the season. Um, we actually, it's a good time to record it, actually, Will. Uh, we had a winner today, so we bred a lockdown. Wonderful who won at Kempton tonight. Um, lockdown. Oh, wonderful. The well-named not Absolutely not the two-year-old who I definitely remember backing on three occasions last season. So he was actually well thought <laughs> of as a two-year-old. Um, he is a charm spirit. So he was actually bought by Qatar Racing. Um, and yeah, was thought of a lot. Uh, Hugo Palmer gave lots of lots of good accounts of him. Um, he just didn't manage to get his head head in front. Um, he has subsequently been sold twice, um, and yeah, made made. Well, it wasn't his winning state debut. It was on his <laughs> second start after a wind up since joining George Baker that he won at Kempton tonight. Um, that actually means that every horse that Bounty Box, who's a mare that we've still um, obviously got on the start has produced and got to the track has been a winner so she's kind of the the flagship horse for us um your urban fee in effect yeah so we we i'll go into this so we bred her owned her in in, in partnership with john sims um she was a dual listed winner on the race course uh when trained by chris wall um she has produced the likes of fuente who placed in the group three as a two-year-old 
Uh, Corey Enthes, who won on debut impressively at Dundalk and was sold to race in Hong Kong. Um, she's produced for Dippides, Gabrielle, and then most recently Lockdown. Um, she has, if anyone's looking at purchasing a horse, we have a Havana Gold yearling going through the, the sales at Doncaster in, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we've also sent her to Zoo Star. So we've got Philly Foal um, by Zoo Star, and she's back in Foal to Zoo Star again this year. So I will be hoping that Zoo Star has a good, a good year uh, this year. Um, she was actually out of Bible Box. The Bible Box is in theory our urgency. Um, she is still at the start, just outside Newmarket at the age of 23, looking fantastic. Uh, she produced uh, Bounty Box amongst others. Uh, she also produced Vive La Rouge, uh, who is the mother to Wokingham winner Rahan. Um, so, yeah, we've got some really nice bloodlines going through there. Uh, my grandfather-in-law, Michael, is in his 80s now. So we are slowly kind of reducing the amount of brood mares and the breeding operation. Um, it still keeps him busy throughout, obviously, the year. Um, we have a Galileo mare called Air Biscuit, who produced probably best known as Solar Flare, who was rated in the hundreds, won a fair few races for William Knight. And then most recently, uh, Bible Box produced her final foal was Choco Box, um, who won for Ed Vaughan a couple of years ago. You might remember an impressive victory at Yarmouth. Um, from Choco Box. Uh, she is currently in foal to Mahatha. So you said obviously around um, breeding operations and bits and pieces that way, obviously you select who you're going to go to. So we've, we've paid the money, we've gone to Mahatha, so hopefully in a couple of years' time he proves a good stallion and we obviously, yeah, make a make yeah, a boulder a yearly. Really exciting. Um, do you have any size that you are keeping your eye on and looking to send your mares to because we we've seen a lot of size um i mean it's always a way with breeding but a lot of size making a name for themselves right now and i was wondering if you had your eye on any so we have done very well previously with baited breath um i think he is fantastic value um he's crept up in recent years which obviously shows um that, he, that he's becoming a more established <laughs> sire um, he's now nearly double of what we paid for him um, when we went to him sort of four or five years ago. Uh, I think he is fantastic. I still think Havana Gold is valued. Um, he's having another fantastic year this year. Um, of the of the more expensive ones, Night of Thunder is is just fantastic, isn't he? Like he's becoming a proper new kid on the block. Um, he of the more expensive stallions obviously looks looks the one to go to. Um, for a personal point of view, we're hoping Zoo Star does really well. He obviously has been fantastic over in Australia so far. So hopefully his UK runners will follow on in that vein of form. Um, yeah, we've obviously gone to him a couple of times with, in theory, our best broodmare bounty box. So hopefully, yeah, he goes well. So I'll be keeping an eager eye on, on how his progeny goes through as well. Indeed, and um, wishing you the very best of luck with that. Um, to round off um, this interview, which I am very, very grateful for, and which I think has been most beneficial to me and also hopefully to the viewers and listeners, um, would you give one piece of bringing advice to people out there who might be interested in 
either looking more at pedigrees or, or even going into the breeding game themselves? It's a hard game. Um, don't be under any illusions that it is very easy. It's not. Um, we had a lovely air biscuit filly, um, beautiful, had an accident. And it's just one of those things, like it, it's very easy to be involved in horse racing, just see these horses on the track, but there is so much hard work behind the scenes that you do. That's what makes it arguably so much prouder to see this horse that you have sat down, decided which stallion you're going to go to. Mm. You have seen the mare, you've looked after the mare, you've seen the foal, you've looked after the foal, you've then seen it grow up. You've then seen it in training in the early days being backed. And all the way through that, you've then seen it go into a race course and in the end, win a race. And it is just incredible. Like we've got one horse remaining in, in training at the minute. We've got Mia Mira in, in, in training with Johnny Portman. She's not a world beater. Um, she finished second on a second ever start. She finished fourth in Apprentice Handicap at Salisbury recently. But that pride of seeing that horse that you've seen just grow up is, is immense. So it will give you so much satisfaction, but it isn't an easy game at all. Um, there are catastrophes along the way, um, but it probably in the end probably makes the highs even more high when you've suffered those lows all the way. I think that's a fantastic note upon which to end this episode of Betting People. So thank you very much, Steve Ryder. Thank you very much, Will. And you can find Steve on the On The Hunt podcast and you can find him by typing into Twitter. It's Steve Ryder 13. Thank you very much, Steve. And thank you very much for watching this episode of Betting People. New betting people interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. Begambleaware.org. Over 18 only.